Reese and Reynolds are aboard a train hurtling through a snowy wasteland. They're eating sushi in a special aquarium slash dinner car. This is Snowpiercer. You lot are very lucky. This podcast only gets made twice every year, in January and February. Huh, why? Not enough top quality content? Enough is not the criteria. So you'll broadcast anything? Did you hear the Spider Clown episode? No, it's all about balance. Oh, you mean this podcast is a closed audiological system requiring the number of episodes we've controlled? Yes, that and because you're listening to Bigger Pictures with Chris Reynolds and Reese Davis Santibanier. You are indeed listening to Bigger Pictures, your favourite comparative analysis movie podcast. Chris, I know you've watched Interstellar, so you're no doubt familiar with how a black hole works. In particular, the event horizon. You can see where this is going. Yeah, I've, I have. Go on. Now, what you may not know is when two black holes merge, the bit where they overlap is called the even horizon, <laughs> uh, from which no movie can break free unless it travels faster than the speed of light. Do you know what the shocking thing is, Reese? In advance of this episode, I then also came up with my own one. Because um, I was, we're doing trains this week, movies featuring trains. So I came up with Welcome to Bigger Pictures. We're the show that's like Hornby train sets sat next to each other. Most of the time it's a Venn diagram, but some of the time it's a train crash. <laughs> <laughs> I was very pleased with that. Yep, we are the most entertaining train crash on the internet. I what we aim for at least. Train crash is uh, is is the high standard we aim for. I think. <laughs> Reese, this week we're talking about trains, aren't we? Because there's nothing more more entertaining than trains. I love a good train. Well, what's not to love? Well, exactly. They're, they're smelly, they're slow, they're never on time. There's always some elderly woman opposite you who's eating a bag of sandwiches. And you're like, oh, what's on those sandwiches? And you look and you're like, I didn't want to know. It's like pickled herring, crab meat. So, so she has these sandwiches loose in a bag? I like. I think what it is is like she's just got like the bread, and then like the filling is just rolling around in like a plastic container, <laughs> and then it sort of falls out onto the bread, uh, and then all her teeth fall out while she's eating the sandwich. This is <laughs> almost as disturbing as a uh, spider clowns. Spider clown. No one's ever going to live past that. <laughs> <laughs> so this week we're looking at two films, which are Train to Busan and Snowpiercer, which I think are both made by Korean directors, and they have some very fancy high-speed trains in Korea. But we don't have. Have fancy high-speed trains in Britain and it got me thinking what would a post-apocalyptic drama or whatever film what would it look like in Britain <laughs> uh, and sort of thinking about some of the wonderfully unique things about the British railway system I've written a synopsis here I've also challenged you to write one as well are you ready mm-hmm John Smith is your average Yorkshireman desperate to get to work. Unfortunately, when the delayed 17 minutes past 8 train from Leeds to Bradford turns up, it is unfortunately full of zombies. Witness John Smith as he faces a thrilling battle to make his way to safety as he must gradually fight his way through the two-car pacer train which should have been withdrawn from service about 15 years ago. Watch as what should be a 19-minute journey slowly becomes a four-hour epic battle following a signal failure just outside Bramley. Can John make it safely to the broken disabled toilet at the other end of the train? Will any of the undead (laughs) offer him a seat? And what will he do when the conductor reveals that his season ticket ran out of date on Wednesday? Join us in Snowpacer, starring Christopher Eccleston as John Smith, Vinnie Jones as the accountant, and the voice of John Hurt as the train conductor. (laughs) Would you watch that film? It sounds sounds absolutely awful. (laughs) 
<laughs> is it in real time? Is it, yeah, is it yeah. just four hours of monotony? Well, basically, you go into the film and like Chris Freckleson at the start would say, hey, up it's only 19 minutes from Leeds to Bradford. Then he'd get on the train and then like <laughs> it would be full of zombies. And then as the train slowly pulls out of the station, it would just get slower and slower. And you'd get occasional announcements from John Hurt saying, oh, the train's going to be delayed. Um, and it Is that John Hurt or Johnny Vegas? <laughs> um, in my head, I can only do one voice and it's one of the two of them, but I'm not sure which one it is. <laughs> but he just occasionally you'd hear his noise, his sort of voice come through on the speaker system please don't use the disabled toilet it's broken (laughs) (laughs) and like the film would you'd go in like even better there'd be like an experience like you look at the cinema listings and it would say this film is 19 minutes but then of course as you go in they just lock the doors and then it goes from 19 minutes to four hours so you get like a bit of experiential cinema where basically the film is just getting longer and longer and longer while you're desperate for the signal failure at Bramley to be resolved <laughs> I was very pleased with myself. Uh, you should be. You've created uh, cinematic torture. I mean, Train to Busan has given me some horrific mental images, but a train full of zombies on a pacer train. For listeners' benefit, a pacer train was this sort of bus on wheels introduced by the Thatcher government in the 1980s. Sorry, Chris. Sorry. Sorry. Bus on wheels. Yeah. So basically. Buses already have wheels. Uh, a f- bus on rails. Bus on rails. Bus fine. on rails. You're, you're right. Yeah. Sorry to be pedantic. No, no, I think that's. I think it's one of these things that's worth explaining. <laughs> People might get confused. A pacer is like um, is a real experience. Um, did you prepare a wonderful synopsis for me of, of your own sort of British post-apocalyptic train journey? You you challenged me with coming up with like a, a British remake of Train to Busan, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid to say I've taken it a little bit more seriously than you have. No, uh, not that yours wasn't wonderful in its own way. <laughs> I wouldn't go and see my film. I just wouldn't bother. <laughs> so there's a lot to unpack in Train to Busan. There are some bits you definitely need to keep and some bits that are just kind of like dressing. Like, for example, the fact that it's a train. It could be any form of transport that's kind of got you locked in an enclosed space. Mm-hmm. This is what you found last week with um, the plane films, right? Yeah. That like you could have almost anything instead of the plane and it would still be just as dramatic. Yeah. And like the zombies, for example, I think there's, it's important to keep in mind that there's more to a movie than its monster. So if you could keep the feeling of a zombie apocalypse, then you don't necessarily need the zombies themselves. The key part of Train to Busan really are the journey, yeah. uh, this sense of mass hysteria, mm-hmm. and then like inner conflict between selfishness and responsibility. Right, which we'll talk about in a bit. Yeah, go on. So before I start, I want you to imagine the trailer, like flashing scenes. Mm-hmm. A father and a son eating takeaway on a train station, a tram stop on fire, and fighting in the streets. Mm-hmm. It's August 2011. Phil is out having a few drinks in a pub when he gets collared by security. They want to see his ID. Turns out he's only 17 and his dad's just ratted him out in front of all his friends. Phil and his dad now have to take the last tram back to Croydon. To begin with, it's rowdy, fully a typical late night characters, <laughs> but that's yeah. when a riot breaks out and the chaos really starts. <laughs> this is the last tram to Central. <laughs> um, yeah. Hang on, is this based on the London riots? Well, that, that would basically be it, yeah. Like they're taking this tram home and they're having like an awkward personal drama, and that's when the London riots start. Because if you oh, remember, so it was... Actually, um, you've actually created, like, a real scenario that that could have physically happened, whereas mine was probably a bit unlikely. What, yours? Well, I thought yours was a documentary. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, well... Northern zombies on a pacer train. The, the zombies would all have northern accents as well. And they'd be eating Greggs. Yeah. <laughs> they'd, be, they'd be screaming in northern voices. Ew, brains. <laughs> Who would be in this film, Reese? Do you have any suggestions? 
uh, basically no. I, I went through the list and I think I don't know anyone who's like the right age to fill these roles. Like how many 17 year old British actors do you know? Is Daniel Radcliffe still 17? <laughs> Probably no. not. <laughs> no, uh, like I think Daniel Kaluuya can do oh, yes, kind of comedy great. and drama equally, right? He's really good, but he's the wrong age. He's probably about um, sort of 50 now, because I can't remember when he started, but <laughs> um, I really like him, yeah. They also, you'd have to find British actors willing to go to Croydon if you were going to film it on set, like in, in on location. <laughs> Yeah, well, they wouldn't necessarily have to go to Croydon. Like, in Train to Busan, I'm not sure that they ever make it to Busan itself. They, they, so, so as long as they're willing to kind of go, you know, from Wimbledon towards Mitcham, maybe a little bit further. <laughs> I can see Olivia Coleman's contract now will not go past Mitcham. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, um, in Snakes on a Plane, it was part of Samuel L. Jackson's contract that he wouldn't be within eight metres of a snake at any point. <laughs> So it might be the same thing that, like, if you had Hugh Grant in a cameo role, uh, he might refuse to be within eight metres of Mitchum at any point. Hugh Grant is amazing in Paddington too. I, I think Hugh Grant's actually underrated as an actor and has basically <laughs> typecast himself into rubbish roles and actually is, is much better than we give him credit for. I think it says a lot that you can name a film after a, a London train station like Paddington. Uh, but you wouldn't necessarily think of making one after a tram stop in Croydon. Elmer's End, the movie. <laughs> this, this was always going to be the issue with this episode because I have a, quite a good knowledge of the British railway system and it was always going to descend into me just talking about trains. So yes, let's desperately move on and talk about Snowpiercer, which does feature a train that might go through Britain, but does it really? Reese, can you let us know what the plot of Snowpiercer is? Snowpiercer is the 2013 film directed by Bong Joon-ho and then written by Bong Joon-ho and Kelly Masterson. In the future, an attempt to reverse global warming goes too far. The only people left alive are on board Snowpiercer, an unstoppable train hurtling through a frozen hellscape. Sick of the squalor in the tail end of the train, Curtis leads a revolution to take over the engine and control the new world. This is basically like the worst episode of Thomas the Tank, isn't it? Where, like, <laughs> the island of soda is the last refuge of humanity. I think this film, up until about the last 15 minutes, is brilliant. And then the plot quite slowly goes downhill. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, no, I had almost the opposite impression. I had think the first 15 minutes were the most disappointing. Yeah, I did find the first 10 minutes a bit dull because nothing really happens. But then you've got the wonderful John Hurt turns up. And for listeners who've not listened regularly know that I do a terrible job. John Hurt impression. But an amazing Johnny Vegas impression. It's a very good Johnny Vegas impression. So, silver lining there. Uh, hello, Curtis. <laughs> We're stuck at the back of the train. Anyway, um, so so it's the first first 10 minutes are basically them stuck in the tail. And to me, the movie picks off the second that Tilda Swinton appears. Now, I'm not Tilda Swinton's biggest fan, but that scene where she's like, the shoe is on the head. You don't put the shoe on the head. Your place is in the tail. And you're just like, oh, wow. Like For some context, <laughs> the, the, the people from the top of the train, they come to the back and they take the children from the people there. They just abduct them. And one of the fathers of these kids throws a shoe at her. And she, says, she turns around and says, this is not a shoe, this is size 10 chaos. You, you've written down exactly the same quote that I wrote down because I, was, <laughs> I just love that so much. Also, um, have you seen The League of Gentlemen? Yes, yeah. So she reminded me a lot of Pauline from The League of Gentlemen. Which one's Pauline? She's the one who runs the job the job restart course. Oh, yeah. She's obsessed with pens. <laughs> like, it reminded me of that. And 
And the reason I love this film so much, apart from the last 15 minutes, is because it gets that sort of dark humour mm. so well, uh, which is something I, I Bong Joon-ho does in, in other of his, his films as well. The humour in this film sometimes feels incredibly subtle. Like the casting choice, for example, of Chris Evans mm. as Curtis, the main character, who's leading this revolution in the train. Kind of the polar opposite of his Captain America character in, Mar- in the Marvel films. So he's almost Comrade America in this. Mm-hmm. There's also a scene where they open up one of the carriages when they're like fighting their way through. Mm-hmm. And inside is what looks like a human swarm of a cross between a SWAT team and the SS. <laughs> yeah. Standing there with like axes, machetes, and then balaclavas pulled down. So that instead of their eyes being seen, it's just their mouths. Mm-hmm grimacing in this in this weird bizarre little um carriage Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things i really like about the film is like this sense of like surrealness at times yeah because here is this bizarre thing to look at and then an action sequence that follows and is that again and again and uh, Mm. i just thought it was really funny what did you think of the world created as part of of this film because i think it's astonishing there's just so many crazy elements to this world that are all entirely believable that i i don't what does bung Jun ho dream to come up with this stuff. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> I thought it was really funny how, on the one hand, it's it's so vibrant, right? It's so rich and uh, it, it feels so impressive. But then, like, if you poke it even a little bit and try to figure out, like, the logical, like, extension of it, it falls apart completely. And I think it makes it feel like this allegory. It's quite an obvious allegory as a movie. It doesn't concern itself too much with the plot and, like, the actual reality of it all. I disagree a bit on the plot because the plot, there is a very clear plot, which is rubbish at the end, but the... Well, the plot is get from the back of the train to the front of the train. With various things happening a lot along the way. Yeah. So it's various little, like, action vignettes, surreal little episodes, but there's not a sense of, I don't know, what's a film with an intricate plot? It, it like unlike Con Air, which tries to explain every bit about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yes, this yeah. film does not because it doesn't need to. No, it doesn't. And I don't know no. quite think Con Air needs to. <laughs> but like in in terms of the world building, you've got things like the, the drugs that they're taking. You've got that video of Wilford where they're talking about how great Wilford is, and it's like, how did they have time to make a film about how great Wilford was and then broadcast that to kids as part of the education car? <laughs> and they've got that song as well where the kids all sing about like how they're all going to die if they get off the. Track and and stuff like that yeah also that was grizzly one of my favorite bits is the bit where they celebrate new year going over a bridge because they know that it must be a year because it takes them a year to go around the whole world Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. so they all celebrate new year in the middle of a battle (laughs) um i I just think it's can i tell you one interesting fact about snowpiercer yeah it was produced by Miramax, of which Harvey Weinstein was in charge at the time, disgraced movie producer, and he was known for making lots of cuts to films. And in Snowpiercer, there is a scene, which isn't integral to the plot at all, with a fish. Uh, it's a big koi fish, and they cut it open just before having this huge big fight. And it makes no sense at all. It doesn't really contribute to the plot. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and Harvey Weinstein was said... You, that's in the carriage with the, the SWAT SS team, right? Yes, that's exactly... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And yeah. Harvey Weinstein said, you've got to cut this because it's totally pointless. And Director Vaughan was like, look, this is a, a dedication to my father who was a fisherman. And Harvey Weinstein said, okay, fair enough. I'm all for family. I fully understand why you want to keep it in. It's fine. <laughs> and later on, Director Bong Joon-ho said, nah, it was a total lie. I just wanted to keep the scene in. <laughs> 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 just lied to Harvey Weinstein so he could keep the scene in. So, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. You know how Quentin Tarantino yep. is often lauded for like his subtle film references that he hides in his movies? Yeah. I, I think there's a couple by Bong Joon-ho in this one as well. Mm-hmm. So when they're doing that fight scene with the 
the guys in the balaclavas and the koi carp that they slit open. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a tracking shot along with the action that feels kind of reminiscent of Old, old Boy, if you've seen Old Boy. Old Boy's amazing. Another yep. uh, Korean action film, yeah. But there's an even more subtle one, which is, I think, just a bit later on, when Curtis and the rest of them are kind of walking through the upper-class cabins. They mm. finally get there and they're kind of in awe. It feels like a reference to the 19th... In Snowpiercer, Curtis <laughs> is inside the train, but still outside the lifestyle. And it feels like Bong Joon-ho's coming into the station, mm-hmm. watching like a series of vignettes through the windows of upper-class life, from a food preparation to a dining car to a couple like dancing in a double-sized car. Mm. But whereas in Possessed, the main character is outside looking in, and then later on invited to come inside and look outwards. Yep. Tree on like the ideology in Possessed. And saying that even though you might physically go into that space, doesn't mean you automatically fit in. Yeah. You don't necessarily identify with everything going on around you. I thought that was really clever and it really fits the theme well. He he almost drifts through the whole sort of what's going on around him. Mm. Mm, and I, yeah. I, I, I agree. Um, my only other point that I was going to say was that the fish is apparently a reference to the Godfather. That's why it's meant to be in there. Oh. Cool. If I may make one final point, mm-hmm. I really like the costumes as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do think they're great. Was there anything about the costumes in particular that you thought were interesting? Yeah. So basically you've got like, you've got people wearing suits. You've got that lady who helps Wilfred who wears like yellow. Tilda Swinton seems to be dressed as Princess Leia, but like an evil version. <laughs> and then everyone else is all in rags and, and things like that. So there's like a real sort of range of, of different costumes that really stick out and look stunning. Yeah. Well, like Chris Evans is wearing this overcoat, but the back is mended with duct tape, where obviously it's like split or torn in several places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the executioners who are in suits, like you mentioned a second ago, if you look carefully, they're actually like really um, frayed at the corners and they're falling apart. So even though they're meant to dress up smart in order to kind of reflect the, the airs of the upper classes, mm-hmm. they're really their clothes are no more well looked after than Curtis and everyone else in the tail section. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Really subtle, like separation of people. The other film we're looking at this week, which I can't think of a good segue for, is Train to Busan, which I had seen before and you hadn't seen before Mm. and I was desperate to get you to watch it. And we did contemplate admittedly doing this as part of our zombie week, but we held off because it's so... and such an excellent use of trains. (laughs) Reese, would you like to tell us what the plot, please, is of Train to Busan? Train to Busan is the 2016 film directed by Yeon San-ho and then written by John San-park and Yeon San-ho. A highly successful but disappointing father is taking his daughter by train to visit her mother. A zombie outbreak derails their plans, but it seems the father and daughter have as much to fear from some of the other passengers as from the zombies. Will they survive and will they ever make it to Busan? Do they make it? <laughs> um You like the ending to this one. You thought they were you what was your word? That it was very kind to them? It was very kind to them. I was hoping for some there was a bit where I personally thought they probably should have cut it and just left it vague and there is an answer to this question but we won't say what it is um, they sort of make it and i'll leave it at that so i don't ruin the plot too much <laughs> i i don't know where to start with train to busan this is in my opinion an amazing film mm. and it goes back to what you said right at the start the film is not about the trains it's not about the zombies it's about the idea of self-preservation versus caring for each other and there is a very strong message that you get at the end of this film and i mean i think that there's bits in it where like so the, the main character i'm going to pronounce this wrong i'm afraid but suck Wu, who's the hedge fund manager he is incredibly selfish 
Yeah, like at one point he tells off his daughter Suan for letting an old lady take her seat. He says, at a time like this, only watch out for yourself. Mm. Like that, that you couldn't really be any clearer, mm-hmm. really, about what his character is. And over time, that changes because he realises that perhaps mm. when you're faced with a horde of zombies on a small, narrow metal tube, you actually do need to work <laughs> together. Yeah. And the person who helps him realise that is, apologies for the, the pronunciation, uh, is it Sangha? The Sangha, uh, Sanghua, I think it's pronounced, but I really don't know. Which is the chap with his pregnant wife, mm. who's the is it clearly like a bodybuilder or something in Korea. <laughs> he basically says to the young girl, he says, "Do you know your dad's a bloodsucker?" And the girl turns <laughs> around and says, "That's okay. That's what everyone thinks about him." <laughs> oh, I think that that man is amazing. I think he's so good in this. His bits can often come across as a bit ridiculous because, like. <laughs> So he's he's really really well built. He's he's almost stocky, but muscular. Yep. There's a bit where there's him and a couple other guys are running along a train platform trying to hop onto a moving train. Yeah. And he's at the back of the three because he's the slowest. <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to say now. Go on. He dives off to the left because he sees zombies coming towards him. Picks up a police baton and a shield, and the other two guys have jumped on already. And they're like, come on, hurry up, hurry up. And he's like struggling, like puffing and panting. It's quite clear he's not going to make the train. As in the train is so far ahead of him that like he's clearly not going to like make it on to the train. He can see two more zombies coming towards him and he has to yeah. fight them off and then try and catch up with the train. Which of course he somehow catches up with, despite the fact he clearly wasn't going to make it in the first place. <laughs> I think it's great, though. It is great. I think it, it's, it's something you don't quite expect. For the main character, the hedge fund manager, yep. I think there are three characters he's meant to like be influenced by. So the two like good influences, which, as you pointed out, are the bodybuilder with a pregnant wife, his daughter, and then there's also one of the like company executives for the train company on board, <laughs> who is the exact opposite of an upstanding citizen. He's content to sow paranoia, amongst the passengers and turn them all on each other. He's awful. He's also, when he's being chased by zombies, he's more likely to throw you in front of the zombie than he is just to close a door behind himself. And he thinks that's the way he's going to survive. If he closed the door behind himself, then the zombies wouldn't be able to get past him. Like, it's established early on that zombies can't open doors. Yeah. Unless they, they somehow crack through the glass, if it's a pure glass door. But there's a bit where he's like hops onto a train, and then rather than just close the door behind him, he grabs a, a young teenage girl and then throws her in the way of the zombie. <laughs> Like furthering, endangering himself. And it's like, it's again like the bodybuilder trying to catch up with the train. Like, it's it's hilarious. It's in character. It's it's meaningful in the context of the film. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense logically. It's If I may talk about one thing that you sort of alluded to there. Mm-hmm. Can I talk about the zombies? Yes. Because you said how zombies can't open the doors and the trains. And I think the zombies are amazing in this film. Like, it's, it's the way the people move mm. who are playing them. But also how they do things like... They, they have them all pressed up against the train door and like desperately trying to fight their way in and there are some shots like the bit when they, they come out the train and there's all those soldiers there <laughs> and they're all zombies or, or like there's like bits where you've got like all those zombies hanging on to one of the trains at one point and I just are uh, like there's it's so well done mm-hmm. there's a bit right at the very start where it's got nothing to do really with the film at all where some guy's trying to drive through an area where there's been a chemical leak or something and he runs over a deer and mm-hmm. You think this is going to come back to it later on, but it doesn't. And as he drives off, the deer just, like, gets up. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's horrifying. But on that note with the zombies, I mm-hmm. think it's really interesting how it also feeds into this idea of selfishness that the main character's trying to grapple with. Because there's a certain economic idea where 
it kind of encourages you to think of people as basically just stomachs. Mm -hmm. That all we are is like organisms that are trying to feed ourselves and we need as much as many resources as possible. And so it's in our best interest to always be seeking more. And that's what the main guy does as a hedge, hedge fund manager. He's always like trying to acquire more assets. Mm. And what the zombies give you in this movie is a sense of, well, look, if these really are just an endless horde of vicious stomachs, then humans, even the selfish humans, are more than that. They have the capacity to make choices, to make good choices, to make bad choices. But that is ultimately what defines humanity. Mm. And you are morally responsible for whatever choice you make. And I thought that was really interesting, like even contrasting the, the chairman of the, the train company with zombies. <laughs> and just it adds another layer to the, to the story. The monster was not outside the carriage. It was in the carriage the whole time. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I just oh, this amazing film with a really subtle uh, theme and you've made it feel like an after school special. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's gone from sort of um you know some excellent film to sort of bad disney so i picked this double bill because these two films broadly speaking are about a group of people who have to make their way through a train killing everyone in their way snowpiercer is from the perspective of this overwhelming mob while train to busan is focused on the ever-shrinking group of humans on the other side of the mob mm. and i thought that was a, an interesting switch of perspective because snowpiercer is like this deeply cynical quite naked allegory for working class revolution yeah whereas train to busan feels like it's it's almost on the side of the other side of that there's the, like this government story that to begin with they're just a, a workers strike and then afterwards it's turned into a riot but on the train we see firsthand that it's none of those things it's a, a zombie invasion i don't think it's a coincidence that these things are likened to each other i i think one of the key things going back to that that, that point is that in train to busan it, it, it's not it, the message is sort of work together to, to to fight the zombies, and that doesn't really matter who who you're working with because there's obviously the, the homeless character mm. on it who they initially all think is crazy, and then they sort of realise perhaps we should you know mm -hmm. start speaking to other people and and you know sort of caring for one another, and it is a sort of stranger way of doing that. I I do think Snowpiercer the allegory is as you said naked. It's it's not just naked; it's thrashing about a bit as well, and perhaps <laughs> it didn't quite need to be that that blindly obvious. Well, in some ways, it comes down to like you said in the past, an issue of showing, not telling. And in Train to Busan, the characters are, are shown to behave in certain ways. Like to begin with, they're skeptical of strike action, and then they're kind of uh, disgusted by the homeless man, and then by the end, once all of the the structure of civil society is broken down around them the hedge fund manager and the homeless man can finally work together. Mm. But that's the only situation where they can work together. Yeah. One, one interesting point, which I'd like to just go back and relate to our, our previous episode, is the use of the mm -hmm. train to create a closed world in which all these tensions can be explored. And to some extent, if we compare that to the films we looked at last week, playing as again, this, this closed world, which allows something ridiculous to happen, like fighting snakes on a plane or, or <laughs> trying to... I, I don't know what Con Air's trying to do, but, but, but the, the, it is used in that way. But what is so excellent about these films, and I'm not dissing Con Air and Snakes on a Plane, is that these films really look at characters, mm -hmm. whereas Snakes on a Plane is, is more about having amusing... Caricatures. Caricatures, yeah. <laughs> you, you've hit the nail on the head. <laughs> so Snakes on a Plane and Con Air are about caricatures. These films mm -hmm. are about characters, and that's why I like them so much. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a great pick. I only hope that next week is as great a pick. Uh, we're doing... Uh, automobiles to complete yes. a little trilogy of planes trains and automobiles so if, if you haven't managed to spot it that's what it is that's what we, we have been doing <laughs> planes trains and automobiles which was suggested on a, a rather um 
drunk Christmas uh, week over over Skype or whatever it is. Um, I, I probably <laughs> the same had a stroke bit of genius m- that came up with Babe versus Jaws. <laughs> Um, so we've decided to do planes, trains, and automobiles without watching planes, trains, and automobiles because planes, trains, and automobiles is a terrible film, even though it has John Candy in it. Um, so we just couldn't quite bring ourselves to watch it. So we've done two sort of caricature films. We've done two very excellent character-driven films, and next week we're going to be looking at the Fast and the Furious, this exciting oil sort of drenched rev 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 uh, car film, and Crash by David Cronenberg. And if you've looked that film up, you'll know that that's going to be a very interesting comparison. We've I've not seen either <laughs> of them, so I'm very 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 excited. Should be good. So yes, yeah, so, so do join us for the final instalment of Planes, Trains and Automobiles. If you do want to get in touch with us and have any comments or all you want to suggest any British sort of suggestions for a post-apocalyptic world set on the train, you can get in touch with us um, <laughs> on Twitter at History Reynolds or at Reese DS. You can find Reese on Instagram on whatever however you find people on instagram <laughs> i've still not got the hang of that it's still reese ds on any social media that matters i'm reese ds J- just google reese ds and you'll probably find <laughs> reese somewhere just scream my name into the void <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for listening and have a nice week bye bye So, um... <laughs>